Welcome inside the Pocket Authority. No, it's not the Pocket Authority podcast, is it? It's what's it called? It's Planet Prospects. You're listening to Planet Prospects, the source for all things hockey prospects. Hosted by David Sis. Welcome back to Planet Prospects Podcast. I'm Ben Steiner alongside David Sis. And man, we've got an episode for you today. Uh, it's the day after the World Junior Hockey Championships ended in Edmonton, in that bubble in Edmonton. Canada, they didn't win. Bit of a disappointment. We'll get into that. Uh, but David, how are you doing? Uh, we're about 18 hours out from that gold medal hockey game. You know, we're going to get into a little bit more about the game after. But I got to say, I was really impressed with uh, the Americans. They played a great game of hockey. And (laughs) as much as I know Canadians are upset that obviously they didn't win and this was their tournament to lose, but if you watch that game, you cannot be disappointed with what the Americans did. It was a great game of hockey from start to finish. Honestly, just a phenomenal performance on the ice for the Americans. And I really just can't complain there. Yeah, I mean, you can't really complain about that final, I think, uh, anybody who's listening to that this podcast probably listened and watched the final uh, last night. Uh, it was an exciting final, uh, of course, two nothing for the Americans over the Canadians. But just as a tournament as, as a whole, I thought this tournament was—I mean, it was a lot different than other tournaments. Of course, there was no fans; it was in a bubble. But I still thought it offered something, uh, especially in the medal rounds, because earlier we had those blowouts that we talked about last week. There wasn't really much excitement from those games. And then. In the medal rounds, in the knockout rounds, you start to get some of that excitement. You saw uh, Canada at least have to play well against the Russians. Sure, they beat them 5 nothing, but they had to play well. You saw the U.S. Uh, scrape by uh, the Finns. The Finns uh, scraped by in the last couple seconds against the Swedes. We actually got some good hockey in the knockout rounds, and I think that's why you keep this tournament the way it is. But I was pretty pleased with the tournament, even if it was in a bit of an untraditional setting. And, you know, we talked uh, the first or second episode, we were talking about how we don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, earlier in Canada's bubble before the tournament, uh, COVID got exposed to the bubble. And then a lot of teams got plagued even when the tournament started and they came to Edmonton, they were plagued with COVID. So we were a little skeptical on exactly how things would play out and if we would actually see a January 5th finish to the tournament. But I got to say, once they hit the ice, once everything started going... It ran pretty much without a hitch. I think I thought it went perfectly. You know, you could see that they really learned from not only what the NHL did in their bubble, but they also definitely learned from, you know, anything that might have went wrong with Canada's training camp bubble, anything like that. Clearly, they adjusted on the fly and were able to host a pretty seamless uh, tournament. Yeah, it clearly worked. I think there's definitely some teams that would have done better if they had their full <laughs> rosters. I mean, if Germany had Lucas Reichel, if Austria had Timo Nickel, if Sweden had so many guys, I mean, William Willinder sort of comes to mind. They were missing him. Um, and of course, they went out in the quarterfinals to Finland. But overall, I thought it was a good tournament. And I think TSN as well. I'll give a hat tip to them because they made it, they made adjustments to make this tournament a little more intriguing. It wasn't just your typical hockey broadcast. For sure. That was definitely a highlight of the tournament. And always, you know, a top-notch organization, they were going to put on a good uh, broadcast either way. But this, they definitely, uh, you know, in these uncertain times, and obviously we've had pretty much a year for um, the media to be able to adjust to these settings, but it's never easy, especially at a tournament where the media has to, a lot of them are remote and you're in the bubble and it's tough. 
but they really did a seamless job putting on a great tournament. Honestly, you don't notice the fact that there were no fans. In my opinion, I really wasn't focused on that. I thought that the broadcast crew did a great job with that. I mean, we can get into the fans after, but I think something that sort of uh, was different between this bubble and the NHL bubble was the entirety of the broadcast team, the entirety of the organization around the broadcast was all in that bubble. So everybody was completely focused on producing these games. It was all hands on deck uh, for the entire tournament producing these games. Whereas in the NHL bubble, there was some stuff coming out of Toronto as well uh, and sort of the Sportsnet headquarters, whereas TSN really headquartered themselves uh, in Edmonton, inside the bubble, not just in Edmonton. Uh, and I thought that the productions they did were great. And I also think that it's important that the production staff gets the recognition as well. I think we saw that uh, this year TSN was doing um, recognition for every game of the production staff, the producers, the ADs, the font coordinators, uh, everybody who was involved with these productions was getting a bit of recognition, which of course you don't usually get. It's usually just Gord Miller and Ray Ferraro and uh, whoever the sideline reporter is. Um, but we definitely got some recognition to the production staff, which I think is vital, especially when they've given up their holidays as well. And more than just the holidays, I mean, for some of these people, they've been in there for months on end or uh, over a month, I'd say. And it's that's a very big thing to ask of your crew. Obviously, it's your job, but it was never in the job description that you're going to have to be traveling for over a month quarantined and all that stuff. That was never in the job description. So I think definitely the right thing to do on TSN's part by acknowledging the staff. And I think when you look back at how the tournament played out and the whenever you're going to talk about the broadcast, you have to, you can't just think about the hosts, the on-air hosts. You have to remember all the people behind the scenes that made it everything run so seamlessly. Yeah, so TSN did a great job. I also think some of the media who was at the tournament, uh, there was few, but I thought they did a great job as well. I mean, Scott Wheeler from The Athletic comes to mind. He was at all 28 games. He did an unbelievable job with his various tournament notebooks, various game recaps, and various breakdowns. He's a young genius in this industry, and I thought that he did a fantastic job uh, as one of the few people with access to the actual tournament. For sure. I mean, most people... uh... Most access was remote, but select few journalists were uh, allowed to attend the bubble in person. And those who did, definitely, they made the most of that. And they did a great job with their coverage, for sure. I know last, the last game of the tournament was definitely disappointing for Canadian hockey fans. I do think some people sort of crossed the line a bit, uh, whether it's online or their frustrations around that final game. Um, but what were your sort of immediate reactions to that final game from a Canadian point of view. You have to look at this. Obviously, a Canadian-USA matchup was going to be, uh, especially from a fan's perspective, it was going to be, there was going to be a lot of heated emotions from both sides. Whoever, you know, won, there was going to be some upsetness. (laughs) There's going to be some uh, people that were upset from both sides, and we were going to see that on social media. That always happens without fail. But just, you know, I... I thought, and we talked about this last time, again, this was Canada's tournament to lose and everyone knew that going in. But after that first goal by the Americans in that opening minute, I, at that point I said, and I'm sure everyone was a little bit worried, but I, I, it's not that I thought it was over, but I thought that we needed to see something change drastically because that's what Canada does. They score in the first minute of the game, the first five minutes. That's when they strike first. They've never trailed in a game at this tournament, even by a goal. They've always started with the lead. They've always started off hot. And I think that the fact that the Americans scored that goal right away, right there, to me, ever since that moment, the first minute of the game, the Canadians were playing catch up. 
it, they were not, they didn't have that proper mentality. I don't think they knew what to do entirely. They were, there were times when they played really hard, but it just wasn't there that entire game. Whereas the Americans, they came out kicking, they did their homework. They knew that they weren't expected to win this game. They were playing. Uh, honestly, I thought that was one of the best games uh, I've seen probably all tournament. I'd say that was one of the best ones. Uh, the performance that the Americans put on both defensively was just phenomenal. Spencer Knight played very well, but just the Americans didn't give the Canadian space. If they did have one shot in the slot, it was very rare. They were going to get another, they were always uh, collapsing in front of the net and just making it tough for the Canadians to get a chance. Yeah. I know before the game, I had actually taken a nap. I was feeling a bit off yesterday. I mean, no, no COVID symptoms or anything like that, but I had taken a nap. Uh, and it was about six o'clock. I'm on the West Coast. So the game started at 630, uh, which I was pleased about because rarely do you get a primetime game on the West Coast. It's usually uh, we get the one o'clock or the four o'clock slot or something like that with the time change. Uh, but with that, uh, I woke up around 615. I was sort of groggy and I was just in bed and I sort of was thinking to myself, do I actually want to watch the game? Like Canada's just going to win. They're so good. Like it's going to be such a blowout like there's not going to be much excitement around it of course I was wrong but I also thought to myself there's a gold medal hockey game between Canada and the USA if I don't get out of bed to watch this game how much do I actually like this sport and so of course once I thought that I got out of bed uh, I went downstairs and I watched the game and uh, I was certainly wrong as I think a lot of people were uh, with the way Canada came out in that game I mean they weren't winning with 59 seconds in as they were against the Russians. Uh, it was a fast paced game. That was the first thing that stood out to me. And unfortunately Canada couldn't get the job done, but I also think the U S played what I would call probably a perfect game of hockey. And uh, Trevor Zegras, uh, before the game started, he made a comment to the media saying, um, you know, he thought that the, uh, his, the Americans weren't, uh, they weren't going to get enough credit and that they were going to prove everyone wrong they had a chance to beat Canada they weren't going to be ready to play them and you know obviously you want to have that confidence before a tournament but he was right yeah he definitely uh he clearly had that confidence in his team and I think one thing that we sometimes forget is the fact that what this game not only meant in terms of the gold medal but what it meant to that age group these are uh most of the players there came from that famous 2019 USA draft class where most of those players played for the United States national development team program. And they've been good friends. They've been teammates for a lot of them their whole lives. And this is going to, this was the last game they ever had to play with each other. Probably, you know, a lot of them are for some of them at least are going to the NHL next year, or, you know, they're all going on their separate journeys now. So this was more than, I think, just a gold medal game for that team. This was also a chance, the last, the one last chance to really play together as teammates on the ice. Uh, I think that that really showed. You saw a team that the chemistry was there and they just wanted to play hard. Yeah, I think that's something that sort of Canadian fans can sort of forget because we see that this group of Canadian players, sure, they spent nearly three months together with all the red deer bubble to training camps, the just everything was almost three months. I think it was, but you look at this American team, they've been together since they were 15, 16 years old. It's crazy because Canada doesn't have a national team development program like the U S does. That's how they make their best players is through that program. It's not through the USHL through that program. And then the NCAA. And so these players, they're, they're family. You see that in the videos that you see from the locker room, you see that, uh, in the celebrations, they fight for each other. And while the Canadian team 
you certainly forge those friendships playing in the OHL, playing in the across the CHL, uh, and having that three month long training camp that they had this year. But when you compare that to the U.S., it's unparalleled. And again, on that note, you know, obviously, you know, the Canadians, a lot of them, they played together at this, at, for the Canadian team uh, at different stages, like the Halinka. And a lot of them, even, you know, Dylan Cousins and Bowen Byram, great friends, even though they don't play together. Uh, they didn't play on the same team in the WHL, but a lot of these guys playing high levels of hockey, they've been playing with each other, against each other their whole lives. But that level is, I guess, that level of friendship is a little different when, you've been playing on their on the same team your whole lives you've gone through everything together and a lot of these americans like cole caulfield spencer knight uh trevor zegras turcott uh sander uh, sanderson was a bit different there he came from the next year but again a lot of those guys did play together there they've been playing together their whole lives really obviously you know the canadians a lot of them have known each other before this and they're friends but it's different when you've been playing with your teammates here for years on end and this is your last chance to really you know this is your last game as teammates in this sense so it's it definitely showed on the ice that this was more than just the gold medal in my opinion yeah i think you're probably right on that one i mean the canadian team effectively is sort of an all-star team of the best junior players and then the american team is a real team because they spend the entire season together for sure you know again we talked a lot about how this was going to be Canada's tournament to lose. And I, I just don't think that, yeah, it, it definitely, I, I don't want to say embarrassing, but it, it's definitely something that I'm sure you're looking back and next year management is going to look at this tournament and see, well, where did we go wrong? We put together arguably the best team uh, in terms of pure skill, level of first round talent that we've ever had. Why, how did we not win? We had the best team. We had one of our best tournaments up to that point. How did we lose this? What went wrong? And what do we need to do differently next time? I think that's definitely a question they're going to have to ask themselves heading into next year. But something that I was thinking when Canada eventually lost that gold medal game, was this Canadian team the best team not to win? Definitely in recent memory. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, this is arguably the best roster in terms of talent ever put together on this world junior stage, at least that we've seen to date. Obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Will all these players make the NHL? Who knows? There's no telling. But I, in just in terms of the amount of first-round talent and praise and potential of these players, we haven't seen really anything like it. And not just by a Canadian team, but at this tournament in general. So again, like we've said from the beginning, it was theirs to lose. And when you see this team of this caliber not win in the end, and not only that, but in that fine gold medal game, they didn't get a goal. They got shut out, which was crazy for a team that all 13 forwards were first round picks so that's definitely not something anyone was expected i do think it's probably the best team at this tournament not to win and it's something that we're going to look back on in future years and and in you know five ten years we could be looking back on this team and saying i i, I don't under i can't wrap my head around how this team didn't win looking at where everyone is now yeah, I mean, you look at that and you sort of, you, you see this year's roster and you think 2005, 2006, 2007, when Canada had those star-studded teams of Crosby, Carey Price, Ryan Getzlaff, Corey Perry, like all of those names that have gone on to such success. And of course, they won World Junior Championships. They had that success at the junior level. And we remember those teams. But do you remember the 2019 team that was in Vancouver? That had some good players on it too. 
but you don't necessarily remember that tournament all that much because they didn't win. They were out in the quarterfinals against the Finns. And so I'm sort of curious, in 10 years, what do we remember about the 2021 Team Canada World Junior Team? Maybe we remember the cool jerseys they wore. Maybe the cool socks. Maybe we remember the Hatred Against the Roots uh, song in the TSN montages. But do we remember much of the team? Because oftentimes you don't remember the second place team. You remember the winner. You don't remember the losers. It's a very interesting point. And obvious, again, if this is the U.S., we're going to remember that team for years to come. And not just because they won gold, but because of that draft class and because of that, uh, those, US, those two USTPH or USDPH groups. And we're going to remember that. But this Canadian team, it's a very interesting point. Arguably the most skilled roster they've ever put on, one of the best performances in their tournament history up until that gold medal game. Do you remember this team? And honestly, I think this could be one of those few cases where you do remember the silver medal team and not necessarily because of how good they did, but because of the fact that they didn't win. I mean, I know personally that's going to be a team that I'm not going to be forgetting anytime soon. Just the fact that they weren't able to pull away with the gold medal. And again, I don't think it's going to be one of those teams that you're remembering for necessarily the right reasons. I think it's going to be one of those teams that you look back on and say, what went wrong? How did this team not win? I mean, I'll ask you this. What other tournaments, not even just the World Juniors, do you remember the second place team? I mean, the average fan, you're not going to, you probably don't remember the second place team too much. I mean, it, it depends on, you know, how, how much you really follow this tournament and prospects. And I'm sure most fans, even big hockey fans, probably won't remember. They don't typically remember always the second place teams and everyone who scored a goal in that gold medal game, but still lost and all that. But I think, you know, you're going to remember uh, Devon Le- Levi. You know, he, phenomenal tournament, one of the best uh, goaltending performances we've ever seen at this tournament. So that's definitely someone you're going to remember. I, you're going to remember Dylan Cousins. He's enshrined his name in the history books in Canadian World Juniors uh, scoring for uh, leaders in Canadian World Junior under 20 scoring. So he's going to be someone you remember. But I think just the amount of talent that this roster had is going to be something that you remember. And again, I don't think it's going to be for the right reasons. I don't think you're going to look back at this team and say, this was just so fun to watch and all this. Cause yeah, they had amazing games. I mean, this was the only game all tournament they lost, but you're not going to remember all the goals they scored and just the uh, offensive pressure they put on until this gold medal game. You're going to remember the fact that they lost in a shutout in the gold medal game, a team with all first round picks as forwards. How do, how do you not score a goal? That is what I think is going to be most remembered about this team. Yeah, I would tend to agree that you're going to remember probably the gold medal game. And I think maybe you remember the 16-2 to win over Germany just because it was so crazy, that win, just by the margin of victory. Um, But other than that, I really don't know what you're going to remember about this Canadian team. I mean, you take a look at Devin Levi. We'll see where he goes in his NHL career. There's He's still so far away from making it as an NHL goalie. Like, Uh he still had a fantastic tournament, but he's still a late-round draft pick. There's a lot of fight he still has to do. And of course, if he wants to become a starting goalie, he's got somebody right at the other end of the gold medal game and Spencer Knight, uh, who's in the same organization. So, I mean, you just look at his career pathway right now and what's he striving for? A backup role with the Florida Panthers? A third goalie because Bobrovsky signed for 100 years? Well, look, I, again, I'm not a fan of that Bobrovsky signing and I've never been. And we, we could get into a long debate on that. But Spencer Knight, he is, Florida took a gamble, or not a gamble, but Florida... You know, he, they made it clear that he was going to be their future goaltender. But 
you're looking at the draft last year, it's 2020 and you have the last three, four picks in the draft. You see uh, Devon Levi's available. No matter who you have already slotted to be your future starting goaltender, I, I'm surprised he fell that far. And it's the same thing I've said with Dustin Wolf when Calgary took him late in the seventh round. He was a guy who I think should have been, you know, a second or first round guy. And I had those in my draft rankings. I had him that high, but Levi, it was a similar case. I mean, he didn't play major junior hockey and put up the numbers he did. He was playing in the CCHL. So he's playing junior A and there's obviously a big jump between junior A and the next level, but he's still, I mean, if you watched him play, you know that he has the potential to make it uh, to the NHL. And I think the big thing there is size. Teams are still very hesitant on drafting goaltenders who are not, you know, six foot two, six foot three. And Levi isn't. He's, you know, six foot, six foot one. He's a smaller goaltender like Wolf. Um, so I think that's why he fell so far. But he is slated to start uh, for Northeastern University in the NCAA. He's on the right path. I think he's, this World Juniors performance is definitely going to catch teams by surprise. And I think Florida definitely, I, I think they always saw something in him, but now they definitely have him a little bit uh, higher up on their list of prospects there. And uh, I think, yeah, he might be a bit of a development project. He's younger. He's, he still has a long way to go, but I, I'm really in, interested in seeing what he does in the NCAA for Northeastern. I think he's going to be that team's starting goaltender. And I actually really do think he's going to be a key part of that team. And one of the better goalies in the NCAA for sure. One of the things that stood out about Devin Levi to me was the fact that he was so calm in net. There was another goalie that we'll get to. He was one of your picks of the tournament before the tournament, Yaroslav Askarov. He seemed hectic when he was in net. He was dropping his stick. When he made saves, they were miraculous saves, but they were because he was in a bad position. Uh, I know Kevin Woodley, I listen to a lot of him and I read a lot of him. He's a goaltending analyst and journalist for In Goal Magazine and TSN Radio here in Vancouver. He was saying, and I tend to agree with him, that Devin Levy does things so calmly that he's catching the puck in his chest. They look like routine saves, but it's because he moves so little. He's framing himself for the puck so well, so much better than a guy like Askarov did this tournament. Askarov, we'll get into right after Levi and I... I definitely need to touch on that but when I was right when I was watching uh, Levi play last year and writing my uh, initial scouting reports and player profiles on him it was what I described him as is someone with I guess he's as calm as Carey Price but he is at is athletic he is as athletic and as good at tracking the puck as uh, Jonathan Quick we didn't see a lot of this athleticism necessarily in the tournament because it wasn't what was needed it was that calmness that really stood out and that's you know, what we see with Carey Price, someone who could easily make those huge uh, athletic saves when needed. But what really stood out is just his puck tracking abilities and his calmness in the net. You know, watching him after he let in those two goals, you would not have known if he was the goalie for the winning team or the losing team. He was calm. He always looked, you know, ready. There was, and, and that's the big thing about his game. He plays calm under pressure. He's always seems to be dialed in, focused. He's not looking at the scoreboard. He's focused on what he's doing, if he's stopping the puck. And that was really noticeable at this tournament. But Askarov, on the other hand, and I, again, I touched on this last time, but I made that bold claim that I didn't need to see the uh, Russia play to say that Askarov was going to be their MVP. And I was definitely wrong. I thought that maybe in the uh, bit of a shaky, I guess, not necessarily an Askarov level performance uh, preliminary rounds, we might see him really perform at a high level in the medal games, but it, we didn't see it. 
couldn't be said any we just didn't see it that was not the Askarov that scouts and fans have been watching for years on end that's not the Askarov in the KHL there was definitely something up with him I mean with that not able to uh he kept losing his stick he just he didn't look dialed in there was I think there was definitely something wrong there he wasn't cool, calm, and collected like Levi was throughout the tournament. And I mean, Spencer Knight had his moments as well in the U.S. net uh, where he wasn't cool, calm, and collected. Uh, but he certainly tightened himself up as the tournament went on. And I think initially we thought that Askarov was going to do something similar and tighten himself up as the tournament went on. But in the game where they got eliminated against the Canadians, 5 nothing, couldn't hold on to his stick. Somebody created a Twitter account of Askarov's stick and was tweeting every time he dropped it. So I mean, clearly there was something up with him. That's not the goalie that real scouts know. That's not the goalie that has been playing and crushing it in the KHL. Um, And that's not the goalie uh, that the National Predators drafted 11th overall. So he is a goalie that I think I still have confidence in that is going to be a successful goalie in the NHL. He has a long way to go. And I think the Predators have to be wary of that and make sure that they give him the best goalie coaching possible, whether that's hiring Ian Clark out of the Vancouver Canucks organization, who's sort of touted as somebody who can build goalies, especially young ones. I just look at Jacob Markstrom or Thatcher Demko in, in that sentence. Um, but you take a look at what Askarov did this tournament, and he's a bit hectic. So you need somebody to calm him down. You need somebody to get him to the level of Devin Levi uh, in terms of calmness, because he clearly has the skill. It's just a question of whether he can refine that skill enough so he doesn't get lit up at the NHL level. You see, you know, that's the interesting thing about Askarov at this tournament. And it's important to remember that, you know, these are just, you know, six, seven games they're playing and anything could happen. I mean, this isn't a, it's seven games. It's not their entire career, however. And, and you look at historic numbers of goalies that have made the NHL and he's not so far off from goalies that have had a lot of success at this level, at the NHL level. However, there was, I, I don't think that Askarov was at his best, whether it was there was something off in terms of maybe an injury, maybe it was um, uh, something in the mental side of the game that was wrong, but that there was clearly something wrong. And I was thinking this watching one of the warmups against um, uh, Canada. And I think it was Craig Budden who ended up actually talking a little bit about that during the broadcast. And it was, you saw him in the warmup and obviously goalies aren't, you know, making these huge athletic saves in the warmup, but he looked off. I mean, pucks were just kind of falling out of his glove. He wasn't moving at all. It was kind of his glove hand, just something looked really off there. And that's an area that he's usually strong in. Uh, You know, he's normally a very calm goaltender. We see that. in the KHL and we've seen it his whole career he's normally very confident and very calm under pressure but that just wasn't there this tournament I I'm very surprised by that performance but I definitely think something was off and I can't say if it's an injury Um, obviously you know these are kids you know there's a lot of external factors that go on and one thing that goes on in your personal life could definitely have a major impact on your on ice performance, but there was definitely something there. And again, we don't know what it is, but that was not the Yaroslav Askarov that scouts and fans alike know. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be that worried. I think you do have to have somebody who can sort of refine his game and bring him to that NHL level, because I think he's not there yet. He's not going to be starting for the national predators this year but he is a goalie who I think will make it. Um, And as you said, the World Juniors is seven games. It's really just a very brief window, almost a magnifying glass into this little window 
that in the grand scheme of things doesn't really matter because Mm -hmm. it's seven games. It's with unfamiliar coaches, unfamiliar players, uh, unfamiliar ice size uh, for Askarov because I mean, the angles are all different when you're a goalie Um, that there's some problems that might be magnified when you get into the world juniors and you're in front of the TSN cameras and just the whole, the whole atmosphere of the world junior championships really, I mean, I, I use the word magnifies again. It just puts so much focus on mistakes and people will get hung up on mistakes you make because this is the only time they see you because they don't follow junior hockey the other 50 weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate, and again, but it's, it's what the world juniors is. And again, you know, we, uh, when we talked to Craig Button and leading up to the tournament, I had Russia in the silver medal game and, uh, that was not the Russian team I expected. I thought this was going to be one of the better defenses we've seen. Obviously, Russia's not known for their uh, blue line. They've never been. However, they might not have had, you know, an Alexander Romanov this year, someone who could be the best defenseman in the tournament. However, the level, they had more defensive depth than I think we've seen lately. And if any uh, Russian blue line was going to make a difference, it was going to be this year. However, I the whole the team as a whole I and mean, you could blame Askarov all you want and he did not have a good tournament there's no sugarcoating that however the defense was not that great I didn't love the offense either they were not scoring as much as I thought you know this team could but I also just really I was not a fan of the defense as much as uh they had a lot of potential and I don't think they hit the mark at all I think there was also a bit of a difference making that transition from playing under Valery Bragan for so many years to playing under Igor Larionov I know uh, Bragan put and Russian hockey put a very big emphasis on physical games and playing tough hockey, uh, making sure that you hit guys off the puck and that you're getting to pucks before everyone else. Whereas Larionov takes a bit of a more modern view of the game, which we've seen in the NHL for years, which is uh, the speed and skill aspect. And I think you saw that in the way he used some of his more speed and skill players. I mean, you can look at Pod Colson. Sure, he's a guy who's going to muscle you off the puck but he has also got that skill and he was used in a very different way this year under Larionov than he was in his first two world junior championships uh, under Valeri Bragan, where it was more of a physical bash and crash style of hockey. And maybe it was that transition to, I guess, more of a North American modern style of hockey. That was the problem for the Russians. For sure. I definitely think that, you know, transitioning from uh, different coaches, can definitely have an uh, effect on a team, especially when coaches have two different styles. I think it was different with Canada because Torini was always a part of that uh, coaching staff. And uh, I think his, he knew the style. Everyone knew his mentality kind of, so it was fine there. But when you're transitioning from two coaches with very different styles, that can sometimes cause some uh, issues. And it, sometimes there's a big adjustment period for players that aren't necessarily used to that style who have played at this tournament before, like Pud Colson, who's been here before, who's played under uh, the previous uh, coaching staff, now having to transition the style of play. It is a little different, and that can you know, take a bit of an adjustment period for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of adjustments that you need to make when you're switching a coaching staff. Um, but we've gone over Askarov, we've gone over Levi, we've gone over Knight, we've gone over the goalies, right? Uh, we've gone over Canada losing this tournament, which was certainly not expected. Um, so definitely there's a few surprises wrapped up in what we've talked about. But if you were to list your top three surprises from this tournament, what would they be? It's a good one. Um, 
one of the surprises, and I know we've talked about Canada already, but Canada was a bit of a surprise, the fact that they didn't win. Um, and I don't want to use that as one of my three surprises, but it's something we've talked about already today, but we just can't, I don't think we could talk about it enough. And I, when you look at that game, I was thinking a lot of this. What mistakes did they make? Did they make? What could they have done better to win that game? And you really look at it, and it's there's not a whole lot in terms of the um, roster and that kind of things that they could have done. One thing I didn't love was the amount that they were using Jack Quinn. And I know Torini is very comfortable with Quinn. He knows what he could do, plays with him. Uh, Quinn's a part of his Ottawa 67's roster, but Quinn has not had a great tournament at all. I, I really – he had some errors in that game. I did not think that they used him uh, – I think in that gold medal game, they used him too much. And I think that was definitely a problem. And I like the idea of using some of those guys that don't have a point. We saw last year at work with the kill Thomas, but that was just one thing I noted. I mean, let me tighten you up a bit. Give me one, two, three. What were your top three moments or top three, top three surprises of the 2021 IIHF world junior hockey championship? Number one is Yaroslav Askarov. He, again, I, boldly said I didn't need to watch any I didn't need to watch Russia to know he was going to be that their best player and I was definitely wrong about that he really was probably the biggest surprise and I know I'm not alone in saying that definitely up there and uh, again with Russia as a whole they I again said they were a silver medal team and I was wrong about that clearly they did not play um, they really just didn't play up to the level that I expected them to per se and uh, I thought they did another thing would be um, one thing, a player who caught my eye a lot was, and who I'd say maybe not a big surprise as I had him as the third best player on this team, but someone who still, uh, I think, did even better than I expected was Florian Elias of the German national team. And I'd probably put him as, I don't want to say my, big, my third biggest surprise, but he was definitely someone who caught my eye. And uh, I definitely think he's going to find himself drafted this year, or should, if not. Um, I definitely, you know, he finished right up there with Tim Stutzel and JJ Paterka for the top uh, points leaders on Germany. So definitely, uh, I was a bit surprised with how good he did. Um, I expected him to be probably the third highest scorer on Germany, but just I thought he played at a level above what I was personally expecting. Yeah, I know you had Florian Elias uh, in your top three players to watch for the German team. Uh, so you have Askarov, you have Kanda, you have Elias. Uh, what would you say was the best moment of the tournament uh, outside of necessarily your surprises? Hmm, I think that one of the best moments of the tournament, I love seeing that Czech team uh, beat Russia. Uh, that was just, you know, the Czech Republic are not a bad team by any means. They're always a middle of the pack team, but you could see there how much uh, that win meant to them. You know, it was one of those games that they weren't expected to win, obviously. And you saw when they won that game, it was like they won gold. You know, they were so happy there. You, I think that's one thing you really love to see. And you have to remember, these are all kids. And these games, for some of these, these are the, this is going to be the highlight of their careers. And a game like that, which, again, didn't really have, you know, this wasn't for a medal on the line or anything, but just the pure excitement and emotion on the ice was something I personally loved. Um, just it definitely meant a lot to these kids and was something that as a fan, you know, I just loved to see. Yeah, I would definitely say that game stands out for me. I mean, I was sort of thinking before this, what are necessarily sort of my top three games from this tournament? And I would say definitely that Czech 2 nothing win over the Russians was up there. Uh, I would also say the semifinal of U.S. and Finland, where it was 4-3, uh, super tight up until the last minute, uh, and the U.S. finds its way into the gold medal game. 
And then it's a Canada loss, but I would have to say that gold medal game uh, is one of the best games of the tournament. I thought that was so fast paced. There was a heated rivalry. There was so much in that game that as a neutral hockey fan, I would love. Of course, I'm a Canadian fan. I'm a dual citizen, but I'm a Canadian fan. Um, but as a neutral, that was a fantastic game of hockey to watch. And again, if we're going to talk about those top three, I definitely agree. But I think I would also put in, instead of the uh, Russia-Czech game, which was, that win was one of my favorite moments of the tournament. But in terms of the top three games, I have to put that uh, Sweden-Finland game. That was a phenomenal game. That was just exciting all around. And that's definitely up there. But you asked my top uh, moment of the tournament. And again, I'm one of those fans that, I love to see the emotion in the players. You have to remember these are uh, young players with their futures ahead of them. And just to see, you know, that you work so hard for this, the emotion on the ice after you win or lose, it's, it, that always sticks out to me. And I think you could learn a lot about a player by how they react. You see how emotionally invested certain players were, even if they've won it before. I mean, you saw last night, Bowen Byram, he was very visibly emotional on the ice. And as the captain, he had to go and give everyone their medals and take and be the one to take the pictures, holding the uh, second place trophy and things like that. But you see, he has a gold medal last year, but you see, you know, it, it, that doesn't matter to him. Th- this is how much it meant to him. He really, you know, this was this was everything to him. And you really see that emotion on the ice and how much it meant to him. And then on the opposite side, the Americans and how much that whole age group, it, it just meant the world to them. And the execution and the, I think the chemistry that we've been seeing for years in this national development team program was really put on display. And that was something that personally watching the end of the game and watching them get their gold medals was awesome to see from a fan standpoint one of my favorite moments of the tournament those american players were so happy with the gold medal around their neck i haven't seen uh people that happy for months maybe the tampa bay lightning when they won the stanley cup in that same bubble on that same rink uh but a lot of these players now they're not going back to junior seasons because junior is uh really in flux um i mean qmjhl is coming back at some point and then we don't really know about the o and the dub um, but a few of these players are going to be moving on to the NHL. Um, and a few also improved their stock uh, and saw their stock sort of decline with their play at the World Junior Championship. So uh, I know that the Rachel Dory's Staff and Graph podcast does a stock up, stock down uh, section uh, where they take a look at just various things uh, throughout the world of hockey. But I want to take this into our show here at Planet Prospects and what prospects raise their stock and what prospects maybe drop their stock? If you want to give me two from each um, from the World Junior Championships. Trevor Zegras, uh, obviously, you know, we could say the two arguably the best players in Trevor Zegras and Dylan Cousins. But again, I think if you know these players, we knew they were going to have huge tournaments. We talked about this in our first episode that Zegras was going to have a great tournament. But again, I think definitely someone who, if there was a doubt that he's going to make the NHL, I think we know for sure he's going to be at least on that opening night roster. Definitely someone who I think is going to have a big role in the Anaheim Ducks organization uh, for years to come. One person who I think, I'm, I'm not going to speak on those two as they're the MVPs we know, obviously. Their stock clearly improved. They're the obvious choices. I want to go into some uh, lower caliber players that maybe aren't as known. One guy raised his stock, not making NHL training camp because he's, again, not drafted. 
Um, Florian Elias. He's going to get drafted this year. I think definitely someone who raised his stock. If we're going to specifically talk about NHL prospects that raised their stock, um, that have a chance to make the roster this year because of that stock uh, being, you know, risen Arthur Kaliev is going, he, he again won't make the NHL this year, but he's definitely going to get a closer look at by the LA Kings. Uh, we've always known what he could do, but seeing that level of play, I mean, we saw that great goal uh, to uh, end the game with just about a minute left uh, to send the U S to the finals. And that shot was just phenomenal. He didn't have to move. It's something that not a lot of players could do. I think that's definitely something that, uh, the Kings are going to notice, and maybe that results in him getting a shot. I mean, you stole it right out of my mouth. I was going to say definitely Florian Elias uh, from the German team. It has to be a guy who really improved his stock with his play at this tournament. Uh, there were a few times there where you checked the scoring charts of the tournament, and his name was near the top of the list, and you checked what team he was drafted by, and you see he's hasn't been drafted. Um, but what players do you think lower their stock that might not be as valued or maybe have some questions raised from their play at this tournament. I think we can both agree that Yaroslav Askarov, uh, we've spoken enough about him. He didn't live up to the expectations that a lot of people had for him and his German team. His stock is definitely down, but is there anyone else you think might be down as well? There's a couple of players that definitely didn't have tournament. They had tournaments that they would love to take back. And it's always important to remember that, you know, these are players, this is just seven games and it's hard to take seven games to define your career, especially, you know, in the middle of a pandemic when a lot of these guys haven't played, but, you know, especially the Canadians had a lot of time to practice. They definitely, you know, they had more time in a bubble than anyone else. So there were definitely a few players that really, uh, I wouldn't, uh, one guy who I'm going to say that def- didn't maybe lower his stock, but he did not have a good tournament and it's definitely noticeable and maybe something that, um, caught the eye of management. And that was uh, Marco Rossi. Rossi, obviously, the only real notable player on Austria this year. Uh, obviously, one of the best pl- prospects at the 2020 NHL entry draft. He's going to be an NHL player. Uh, he was drafted by the Minnesota Wild. Now, we knew that um, Austria wasn't going to light it up on the score sheet by any means. And Askarov might not, be, or sorry, um, Rossi might not be a point per game level player. But he went pointless in those four games. He didn't really have a very noticeable tournament. There wasn't a whole lot that you could say Austria as a whole didn't really do anything noticeable, but you would expect with one of the best players at in the entire tournament in terms of pure skill level, he, he really didn't do anything. So definitely not a player who I'd say really caught the eyes of anyone and definitely someone who wishes he could have improved his play that tournament. I mean, you just look at that Austrian team. They score one goal. Uh, you can't really expect much. I mean, Marco mm-hmm. Ross is a skilled player in his own, right? A top 10 pick in the last NHL draft. But when you don't have any support, say, for maybe Santa Peters, you're not going to do well. And I think that really showed for Marco Rossi, who was really left alone. And if he wasn't uh, playing through the roof like Tim Stutzel did on Team Germany, you're not going to see much for Marco Rossi. So I don't necessarily know whether I would have him as a stock down player, Uh, A player that sort of catches my eye as maybe a stock down is Jack Quinn or Quinton Byfield because neither of them really lit the tournament alight as you would sort of expect for top 10 NHL draft picks. Um, So maybe their stock went down a bit. I still think they're both going to make the NHL and be superstars in their own right and worthy of their top 10 selection in the last draft. But I do think maybe their stock went down a bit, at least in the public perception uh, from this tournament. 
Jack Quinn had five points at this tournament in seven games, which is clearly nothing to, yeah, you know, it's, it's respectable for sure. And it's not bad at all. However, his, we thought, and a lot of people thought that he'd be a big goal scorer on this tournament. You know, he had 50 plus goals with, under Torini and with the Ottawa 67s last year, there was a lot of uh, expectations around his goal scoring abilities. And we didn't see that here at all. He did other things well around the puck, but that's not his game entirely. And it didn't necessarily, um, he probably wasn't the best player suited for the role he was used in. And I think he was maybe used a little bit too much. You know, the points, that's one thing, but you have to look at a player's overall tournament. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say he's a stock down because honestly, I probably wouldn't have had him on this team. I thought there were some other players that I probably would have put over him, maybe like Seth Jarvis. So I'm not going to entirely say he's a step or he's a stock down player. I think that I don't think he was used necessarily in the right. I think he was used too much. And I think that was probably the biggest thing I noticed with Jack Quinn. He had some good plays like every player. Uh, he, he did some good things there, but he definitely, um, this wasn't the best performance. And I don't, I think Torini had a lot of trust in him. And I think he was using it not necessarily at the right times per se. Byfield had that one great six point game, but besides that, he was okay. You know, in that gold medal game, he had some nice chances. Uh, uh, he wasn't necessarily someone who lit it up day in and day out. He was used in more of a third line role. Uh, I think he was suited well for the role he was given, but he didn't necessarily, uh, I, I think the LA Kings would have liked to see a little bit more from him. Uh, he will be making the NHL this year, I think, but whether he gets that second line center role, or maybe he's a third or fourth line guy, or maybe he even is put to the wing while Alex Turcotte slots in, uh, in the center role. That could all be, I, I'm sure uh, Kings management was watching this and maybe is thinking about putting him on the wing while Turcotte gets that center role. It's definitely going to be an interesting NHL season coming up. That's really all we have from our World Juniors coverage. A lot of these players will be now uh, taking their shot at cracking an NHL roster. And in the next week's episode, we'll be doing it right before the NHL season gets started. It's sort of weird to think, but the NHL season is right around the corner. So that's all we've got today. For David Sis, I'm Ben Steiner, and this is the Planet Prospects Podcast, powered by Instat Hockey.